The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hey, Zach. Hello, Jack. How you doing? Doing wonderful. Nice to be back here in New York. Here with you in person. It's good to have you here. Um, it's good to be back in a somewhat familiar podcast setting. Uh, we've been here before recording a poker-related podcast, and we're back here on the Tokenomics Podcast. We're joined by the fantastic Aaron Brown. Aaron, uh, thank you so much for inviting us into your home and humoring us by coming on another one of our podcasts and sharing your wisdom, perhaps some of the same wisdom this last time is, I think it's even more useful here, perhaps, uh, than in that setting. Thanks for coming, and uh, hope it can be fantastic. Uh, don't promise. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm hopeful, or I'm confident, very <laughs> confident. So yeah, when, when you were on Just Hands, we talked about a study that I'm hoping maybe you'll give our listeners the details of. Essentially, the study was of people who had been trained in risk management, and they were supposed to flip a weighted coin a certain, or to try and reach a certain goal. You know, they were wagering some of their starting bankroll on each flip. Do you want me to break in with the details here? Yeah, if we would do that. Just <laughs> as, as, this is uh, Victor Haghani, who some of you uh, your financial listeners may re- remember from long-term capital management, and uh, Richard Dewey, uh, another hedge fund uh, guy. And they hosted a series of events with recent graduates in quantitative finance, people recently employed in, in quantitative finance, and they gave them an opportunity to play a computer game for half an hour. They could do coin flips at even money. Uh, real money, uh, they gave them the money to start with, $25. They could flip a coin for any, at any amount they had, 60% chance of winning, and uh, they had about half an hour, which translated roughly to about 300 flips if somebody was really fast pushing the button. And somebody who figures out the right strategy for this is uh, virtually guaranteed to get the maximum they could win. Now, they weren't told the maximum amount they could win, which was $250. They were told there was a maximum, and if they placed a bet that would bring them above the maximum, they would be told that, and that would be shrunk to, so they would just win the maximum if they won. 
but but you know if you just use a Kelly strategy, you have I believe it's an eighty eight percent chance of getting the two fifty, and and if you don't get it, you're going to get something pretty close to it. They did it terribly. <laughs> Many of them lost all their money. Overbetting, underbetting. Uh, I believe the average they came back away with was about seventy five dollars, which is which is pretty terrible. And the conclusion from this study was that all those years of training and the fact that these people were running real money and, and you know, working for major financial institutions, they uh, they had no practical experience with simple risk taking problems. I mean, there's really no simpler risk taking problem than coin flip. And uh, and these people didn't just fail; they they were wildly off. Off by by many factors, you know, if somebody bet twice as much as they should have, or half as much, you would say, oh well, they just you know miscalculated or had you know uh, a little problem. But but these people had no idea how to attack the problem, and it's kind of scary if you know those people are you know setting economic policy, if those people are doing investments or hedge funds, they might be very smart in terms of picking investments or not, who knows? <laughs> but they certainly have no idea how to size them. So. When you first shared uh, that study, I had no reason to doubt its findings, but you know I hadn't met any of these sorts of people uh, to sort of corroborate <laughs> those findings. Over the last year and a half of you know, being involved in crypto, meeting people who are managing risk in various ways in the crypto space, it's become clear to me that that is a huge gap in people's day-to-day understanding. And I'm wondering if you can, you know, point any of our listeners who are learning more or looking to learn more about managing risk in their lives and their crypto lives, or any good places for them to start. Well, before that, and let me break into to that or to agree with you. Uh, one of the things I'm noticing in uh, some of the crypto investments I've got, and I look mostly at the underlying businesses or the underlying. Technology. Some of them are technically businesses, but organizations, decentralized, whatever. And I am discovering that more of them than I would think were betting on crypto as well as betting on themselves. So, you know, you do an ICO, you collect a bunch of cash. You have enough cash to really to keep your employees around for five years, to really develop your idea, to deal with uh, temporary bad patches and, and so forth. And the smart thing to do would be to put the money in something you thought was a reliable um, uh, store of value. Now, you may be completely convinced that Bitcoin is the greatest thing that will ever happen. Bitcoin prices will, you know, soar to, you know, 20,000, million. But why bet your business on it, right? Why take all this money and put it in? And they didn't put it in Bitcoin. They put it in other currencies they thought were doing better. And they traded this stuff. And, and there just seemed to be no concept of, you know, somebody entrusted me with this money in order to build an idea, and I should handle it prudently. At least I should diversify, you know, at least keep some money in dollars. And we're seeing a lot of these businesses closing now, or have layoffs, or, or even the project shut down, purely because they made foolish financial decisions with the funds they raised. So, yeah, there just wasn't, I can't believe people were really thinking about it. The only kind of, thing I would say in their defense is these people were not recent graduates in quantitative mm-hmm. finance. These people weren't working for anybody. These people were technology specialists and possibly they should have hired a CFO who was uh, a little bit more uh, had a little bit more conventional um, business thinking. As to in- individuals, I think the, 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 there is a feeling in, in crypto of 
lot of people, I think, who get into it is that crypto needs a bubble to survive. That there's two outcomes. One is that money pours into crypto because of the money talent pours into crypto. Uh, they have the money to uh, develop killer apps and publicize them and, and subsidize users, lose money so they can uh, build the business and growth. And if that happens, then crypto will take over the world and be worth extraordinary amounts. Or that doesn't happen, then everything's going to die. All the business will close, all the talent will go away, and crypto will cease to exist. I've always believed that, you know, neither of those is very likely, and that a middle ground is, is much more likely. And the middle ground can be sustained without great price rises, without tremendous growth in uh, um, prices. The bubbles, the bubbles help, actually. I mean, the bubbles have... Pro and con. The nice thing about a bubble is you fund all kinds of stuff that nobody would ever fund if they were in a bubble. You bring in all kinds of people. Then you get the crash and or the crypto winter, as people prefer to call it. And a lot of that fades away. A lot of companies close. A lot of the people disappear. But you have that solid core of ideas. Without that overfunding in the beginning, a lot of these things never would have gotten started. So I think my personal feeling is we are in for a fairly long slog, could be years, of uh, steady progress, uh, people with reasonable expectations. I think enough money was raised that, you know, the solidly managed ideas can uh, continue to go. I still see venture capital firms making investments. I still see people moving in. I don't see it to the extent, you know, obviously it was happening a year ago, so we're not... Uh, um, in that phase, yes. So, you know, people, you know, treating crypto as something and I'm going to get it, I'm going to wait till it doubles and then I'm going to flip it for, for something else. I think it's going to be a long time before we see that kind of stuff again. And if it happened, I don't think it would be good for the industry. How analogous is this kind of boom and bust cycle with within crypto similar to like the rise of internet technology companies in the mid to late 90s? It is, I mean, there, there, there is a clear analogy, but the if, if we look at growth of actual users, actual use of cryptocurrencies, um, we're kind of in 1994 for the Internet. And the Internet really didn't have its extreme bubble for five years. You know, it was 88, 98, 99, 2000. So by the time you got the Internet bubble, you know, you had Amazon, you had eBay, you had a lot of, pretty solid companies that were going to survive, although they did, in fact, see very big price declines in, in 2000 and 2001. And by the way, it took them eight years, nine years to recover from that. If we look at the crypto uh, boom in 2013, it took it less than four years to recover from that. I think this is not quite the same thing. We just don't have any crypto company or, uh, or application that is as solid as the internet was by the time they went in their boom. And, and therefore, you know, things are more unsettled, more uncertain. The basic pattern is still there, though. Some people think that this is going to be takeover of the world. Some people think it's worthless and it's all fraud. And it takes a very slight change in people's attitudes and confidence, whatever, to drive gigantic price changes in the underlying. We really haven't seen any big technological news. Uh, by and large, you know, the, the and I'm, I'm really talking here like the top 10 or 20 uh, currencies, ICOs, whatever. I'm not talking about some of the 
bluff. Um, most of them are kind of on track. You know, some are a little behind, some are a little ahead. None has had a tremendous breakthrough like it's, you know, way ahead of schedule or much better than anyone thought. None of them have failed. So things are kind of slogging away, and, and you, know, you, you wouldn't know it from, from the price action. What do you think is unique about the situation crypto was in that allowed it to you know, have this bubble so much earlier in the development stage than the Internet? Uh, two things, I think. One is that the financialization. I mean, we, kind of, we, we, we sort of attacked it on two ends. We had tremendous financial interest in it. Lots of companies came in, they were interested in crypto, not because they understood or appreciated crypto technology or even knew much about it, but because they sensed enormous financial opportunity. Uh, that was much later in the internet. So, so we're kind of seeing things like some of those, uh, you know, internet, uh, uh, hype going in major investment banks and things like that that happened in 98, 99. We're seeing that in, you know, the 94, 93 era. Uh, uh, for crypto, the idea that, you know, in, in 1994, uh, the CBOE would have started trading futures on internet companies, I mean, it was crazy. It was never going to happen. Um, um, just financial world has loosened up, has become more opportunistic, has become more open to this kind of thing. And, uh, and by the way, one of the reasons for that, I think, is that, you know, crypto disappeared tomorrow. It all goes to zero. It's all forgotten about. Nobody ever uses it again. It will have had a tremendous influence on the world. Virtually all the early promises of cryptocurrency were in fact delivered by more traditional fintech. It kind of kicked the financial system in the ass and got it to make some changes it should have made a long time ago. I think that really impressed bankers. I think that really impressed, you know, people working on Wall Street. They said, wow, if, you know, this thing may not have succeeded in becoming the dominant method for making international transfers, but, you know, they convinced everyone else that they had to, uh, up their game and, and change things. On the other end, because of the democratization of crypto, we got hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of you know small investors, you know Korean housewives, uh, uh, Chinese teenagers, people like that. Not a tremendous amount of money, but a lot of volume, hype, excitement, um, um, moving into things. Again, there is no way for anyone to participate that way in the internet. In the internet. Um, um, I remember this pretty clearly back in the early 90s. The only way you could invest in it was, you know, to fly out to Silicon Valley and, you know, wander around finding people to give them money. It was the Netscape IPO in 95, I think it was 95. Um, that was the first internet IPO. And it took off. People poured tons and tons of money into it, not because Netscape they thought Netscape was going to be the great browser. They even knew what a browser was. I mean, in those days, there were tens of millions of people on the Internet, and most of them were, you know, perfectly happy to, you know, work with uh, with, with clumsier tools than Netscape. But it was the only way to invest in the Internet. And they thought, well, we'll put money in Netscape. Netscape will buy other companies. Well, we'll, we'll get invested that way. You know, in crypto, anybody with a smartphone can start uh, investing in it. So what are some of the examples of those like fintech ideas that crypto has jump-started by kicking the existing financial institutions? Well, peer-to-peer uh, -peer transfers. Um, you know, now, you know, you've got Venmo, you got, you know, every bank's got its own um, version. that They're not quite as seamless as uh, 
crypto. And of course, they use a centralized, you know, central intermediary. You have to do all the banking, you know, credit banking, and so like that. But it did take a big part of the market. Uh, transfers among accounts. I mean, uh, even three years ago, if you wanted to transfer money between accounts, you either had to do a wire transfer and probably pay like a $25 fee, or you had to like, you know, carry a check or something, you know, a physical document around. Now, pretty much every financial institution links up with every other one. You just set up the link and, and you move things around. The quality of um, user interface uh, for financial services has, has, has dramatically improved and the plumbing behind it is just much more secure. Um, um, the amount of time it takes to uh, um, you know, get transactions reported and, and, and confirmed and back to and things like that. I think that another big thing was using, uh, was making relatively small payments. Um, again, that used to be a big problem because the fees would be very high for 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 small payments now. We don't have micropayments yet, but uh, but you know you can make smaller payments quite easily. Uh, I think this is the kind of thing we're also seeing on the operation side that we're, we're seeing is much faster and more integrated transact, you know, financial uh, transaction processing. So I just don't think any of that would have happened without the competition with crypto. It's not using any great innovative technology. Basically, all this stuff could have been done 20 years ago. But it wasn't, you know, it, uh, it, 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 it took something. When I look back on my life in banking, you know, when I was a young adult, first started banking, everything was done with a teller. You had to stand in line for every bank transaction. You could only go during your lunch hour because the banks weren't open. The banks opened from like 9 to 3. They weren't open late at night. They weren't, there were no banks near your home. All the banks were in the central business area. And all the tellers took the same lunch hour as the office workers. So it was, you know, this is just how bad the customer service was. I mean, going to the bank was a, you know, uh, major hazard. You need lunch that day. Um, or you need a sandwich standing in line. Um, then there was an explosion, you know, with automatic teller machines, with uh, online banking of various sorts. But then it kind of changed. I mean, from maybe early 1980s to... Uh, you know, 2010 or so, I don't think there was a whole lot of progress. It was pretty much the same. Maybe the online things got a little better and stuff like that. Online brokerage, that was a big change. That was the late 90s. Again, all, but it was like a big bang. You, know, you went from old-fashioned to having this thing. And then once they put the innovation in, it stopped. Um, the last three, four years, I've seen another explosion of innovation. And, uh, the only explanation that I can come up with is, is competition for crypto. It sounds like you don't necessarily see crypto as the long-term solution for payments. What is, you know, your investment thesis for crypto products? What is the sort of niche that you imagine long-term crypto might best fill? I, I guess I put it this way. You know, it's, it's everything is moving to the Internet. So, you know, back in prehistoric times, who you are, what you owned, what powers you had, that was all determined by your face. People recognized you or they didn't. But as society got more complicated, people started using tokens, maybe a staff, a crown, a tattoo. Um, then it got more sophisticated, people started using documents, um, and eventually uh, ledgers replaced documents, and then ledgers became electronic. And none of these uh, systems has been replaced. Uh, you still, you know, 
get a lot of things because people know who you are. They recognize you and let you in. Uh, you carry around tokens like keys to you know, get you into place. You carry around documents like your driver's license. But most of your identity now is in ledgers, and those ledgers are nearly all electronic. What really matters to who you are, what you own, what powers you have is you know, the, what your bank says, your balance is, what the government says, your immigration status is, you know, all these databases. Well, clearly to me all of that's moving the internet. I just don't think there's any real argument about that. And what I mean by moving to the internet is it's decentralized. It's not under the control of any single entity. You access it through a generalized identity protocol instead of having to need a password for every site. You know, you're going to have, I think people are going to have a highly secure identity protocol that will probably involve, you know, some biometrics, some passwords, some crypto, you know, whatever. You're going to have a lot of different things. It's going to have some intelligence in it. So if you forget your password, that doesn't mean you're locked down forever. It means that you have to, you know, prove your identity in some other way. And it's going to be smart. It's going to know that. You didn't buy a drink in Manhattan and two minutes later take out a mortgage in Shanghai. You know, it's, it's, it's going to know the kind of things you do, where you are, and so on. So you have a secure general identity protocol with which you can access decentralized information from anywhere. And the technological advantage of that, the convenience subjective of, of advantage of that are so tremendous that I just don't see any real alternative. But it's going to require a lot of transactions in it. Require smarter transactions that have game theory uh, built into them that have, uh, uh, it's going to obviously need cryptography, because it's the only technology we have now for doing that for lots and lots of uh, exchanges of value. And it's going to have to be value because you're going to have to pay people to maintain it, run it. Uh, you can't just say, okay, we're going to have a system and it's going to work by itself. It's got to have a means of value extraction within it. Uh, I just don't believe there's any chance in the world traditional currency can be adapted to that role. You will need some kind of, uh, you don't have to call it a cryptocurrency, you need some kind of value token that things are going to use. My personal vision is uh, in a few years, five years perhaps, everyone will have an agent. Most people are probably going to accept a free agent put out by Google or Facebook or Amazon or whatever that will do all this stuff for them in exchange for all their personal information. But some people are going to say, okay, I'm willing to pay, you know, 10 bucks a month or something to buy a custom agent where I keep, I control my personal information. If advertisers want to send me spam, sure, it'll cost them a nickel. My agent will negotiate with them and charge them for sending me ads, for sending me things. It will constantly be searching the internet and looking for things to hook me up with. You know, people who have things to sell that I want to buy, people who want to buy things I have to sell, people I'd be interested in talking to, and so on. And I think this is just going to require a lot of smart contract, micropayment types of, uh, of, of, of crypto. Now, what I don't know, well, actually, there's two big things that, that's what I think I know, or at least I'm confident on. The two things I don't know that are really important if you're a crypto investor are will these microcurrencies or whatever you want to call them, will they be exchangeable for normal currency? Uh, there's no reason they have to be. You could have an internet identity, and your internet identity could have lots of different currencies that it holds, and you can only get that currency through your internet identity. So you can only earn it by doing things on the internet. You may not be able to just buy things with it. And, and in a way, if the translation is too simple between internet currencies and physical currencies or fiat currencies, 
then it destroys the value because you know if somebody can just buy the right to spam everybody, that's that's not really good. You really want people to earn the right to send emails by sending useful emails that people like. But on the other hand, if there's no uh, translation, then things kind of get inefficient. It's hard to build a company to do the work to either develop or maintain these things because you can only pay people in the ability to spam. That's not you know uh, that. Probably not good. You can't eat that. So, so I don't know how that thing is going to happen. I think of that as the main financial instability in crypto is what kind of uh, ability to transfer between crypto and fiat currency is going to be. None of that has anything to do with the technical value of these things. I mean, they're going to be there. They're going to be used. They may not be easy to translate into dollars. They're even possible to translate into dollars. The second thing I don't know is whether any existing cryptocurrency will be part of that. Mm-hmm. I can see a future in which every existing cryptocurrency goes to zero, but all these new ones come up and, uh, and, and have great value. So for my personal investment, I try very, very hard to keep, you know, keep exposed to every single decent new idea I can find. And it's hard because you have to, you know, you have to get in pretty early. You have to identify a lot of people who are doing unusual things. You have to make sure you're not neglecting a part of the market just because everybody thinks something else is going to happen. And the other thing I do is, uh, long ago, back in 2013, I said, okay, crypto is going to be 2% of world wealth, 2% of you know uh, the economy eventually, long term. And so I want to have 2% of my assets in it. And, and sometimes people say, well, that's crazy. How can you know that, you know? could be a tenth of a percent, it could be 20%, it could be zero, it could be 100%, who knows. But it's more important to have a valuation for things you're uncertain about than things you're certain about. Because if you if you have no valuation idea, then you, you'll, you'll invest too much when it's going up, you'll sell too much when it's going down, you'll just lose all, even if you're right, I mean, even if you, you know, sort of uh, everything works out in the end, you could end up losing money. The nice thing about having a valuation, even if it's wrong, is you buy when it's cheap, you sell when it's expensive, you make money along the way. In the end, maybe it's going to be 10% of the economy, and I only have 2%, so I'll be underexposed, but okay, you know, I made money along the way. Uh, maybe it's zero, okay, still made money along the way. Um, so I feel like it is very important to have a consistent view, even if you pick it out of the air and just make up a number. And, and act consistently with it. It's just very hard for me to believe that crypto will be, you know, not part of the technology, not a fundamental part of the economic technology in five or ten years. I'm not, I, I don't dismiss these, you know, scenarios in which it's gigantic, where it's 10% or 20%. For comparison, by the way, the internet is about 6% of the economy. Mm-hmm. So transformational the internet was in a lot of ways. That's six percent of the economy. It's a pretty big chunk. Uh, so two percent for crypto seems reasonable to me. So somebody who's saying twenty or thirty percent for crypto—that's to me a kind of a stretch. But six percent for crypto, even ten percent, sure, it's possible. Do you think crypto serves as an effective hedge against the U.S. dollar? And do you think that it's worth having a hedge against the U.S. dollar? I absolutely do think it's a hedge worth having a hedge against the U.S. dollar. Um, it is a hedge for certain scenarios that are otherwise hard to hedge. Um, the obvious example that I think no one can argue with is not supposed to be the U.S. dollar. 
if your country trashes its currency, if it puts in a lot of capital controls, if it does it in Venezuela or in Argentina or something like that, crypto is pretty much the only effective uh, uh, hedge against that. Now, I don't think that's going to happen in the United States. I think there's a pretty low probability event. But I think there are scenarios where the dollar loses a lot of its value. Um, I see, and, and, and that can happen in two ways. It can happen through inflation, or it can happen through financial repression and capital controls. So in one sense, you know, the dollar just buys half of what it used to buy. In the other sense, yeah, the dollar still buys what it used to buy, but only for things you're, you're allowed to have and you're allowed to buy and sell. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so again, yeah, having, having a, a store. And on these days, and I've actually sort of increasingly come to this belief, the only crypto I would say is, I would seriously talk about as a hedge is Bitcoin itself, that the, the, uh, it's hard to see a situation where other crypto has a lot of value and Bitcoin doesn't in, in these kind of uh, flight quality scenarios. Specifically, how do you feel about kind of other more privacy fungible focus or value assets like a Monero? See, I think of Monero as a, something that would be very useful to own in some of these scenarios. I don't think that necessarily translates to an increase in price. I think um, um, you have to look pretty carefully at each one to figure out, would this mean that people bid up the price of the thing? But, uh, and, and by the way, the other issue there is, I think in these scenarios, you're gonna have, you may have to make a choice that in a lot of these scenarios, the government is gonna crack down on these currencies, which means that you can kind of say, okay, I'm a Monero guy. <laughs> I'm living outside the law a little bit, kind of like going in the underground economy, right? If you do all your transactions in cash, it, it's a different life, right? You gotta, the people you work for, the people you hire, all that, all you all have to be in this underground economy and you have trouble kind of straddling the two. If you own a lot of normal financial assets, have normal bank accounts, things like that, you put them all at risk by using um, um, some of these things. So it's gonna make sense for a lot of people to switch completely. So I'm going off the grid, I'm living with Monero. Uh, I don't have bank accounts. I don't have, you know, property people can easily see. At least I don't have my name on, on things. Um, but, you know, the underground economy is pretty big. We've seen in, and, and I mean, again, forget about places like uh, Greece or, or Argentina or Venezuela. Just in developed European countries, France, UK, whatever, we see very big sections of the economy, you know, big chunks have gone to underground economy. And and depending how things come out, you know, servicing the underground economy may be what uh, crypto does. Right now, it's pretty much cash. And one of the things I, I tell people, they say, well, you know, the government would never allow, you know, 20% of the economy to go onto crypto and then get off the grid. But, you know, if they really believe that, they'd, they'd have stopped printing cash a long time ago. Uh, cash is much, much better for this kind of stuff than, than crypto is. Um, and governments prefer the seniorage they can earn printing cash to the uh, to what they lose uh, from the underground economy. And they know very well that if they stop printing cash, they would just, the underground economy would just go to cash from some other currency or or, or some other um, value for there. So there's a lot of unknowns in the future about this stuff. I tend to believe personally. I, I said this earlier. I, I believe in the middle course. I don't think crypto is going to be uh, strongly repressed. I don't think it's going to be encouraged um, um, anytime soon. Um, and I think there's some possibility that we will see governments adopting crypto technology without 
cryptoethos, you know, like the Venezuelan Petro, for example, where they, uh, they, uh, you know, there's a lot of advantages to the technology that you don't need a decentralized, uh, trustless exchange to use. Aaron, your background is in quantitative trading. I wonder how you view the role of quantitative trading in an area like crypto where there's not a lot of data for projects at scale or the sort of metrics that maybe one would use to evaluate companies don't translate as well to crypto. I'm wondering if you if you have ideas about that. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I work on it, right? Because I, yeah. I, I, I mean, all my trading, all my investing is done on quantitative terms. It's true that you need more flexible models. I think, though, what people, you know, there are things people are used to, right? They're used to this idea of, well, I'm going to put the value on this common stock. But what is a common stock? A common stock is an investment in an entity that can change its assets anytime. It can change its business anytime. It's run by this very complicated structure that you don't really have uh, much control over. If you look at the value, you know, the, the, the way you value a stock, in theory, you value it by discounted cash flows, but more than 50% of the cash flows you're going to earn from a typical S&P 500 company, I'm talking about a big dividend-paying solid S&P 500 companies, more than 50% of the present value comes from flows more than 35 years out. And who the hell knows anything about what companies are going to look like 35 uh, years from now, 35 to 100 years from now, really. So, you know, you go back to... 1983. Who in 1983 would have known what Alphabet could Facebook, you know, even Amazon? I mean, they just, these companies were incomprehensible. So, yeah, somebody could go and say, well, gee, I think, you know, IBM, USD, and National Harvest, I think they'll be having these cash flows in 2018. You know, nobody knew anything about it. But things are okay because people really do just relative valuations. They say, well, this company's got, you know, twice the earnings of that company earnings per share. Similar growth prospects, similar balance sheets, so I think it's worth twice as much. And that's how they value things. But nobody really knows what the fundamental unit value is. Gold. You know, who knows what gold is worth? You know, we know what it costs to mine it and refine it. But, um, you know, if everybody decided they didn't want it tomorrow, its use value is trivial. Um, or people might decide it's worth twice, ten times what it is uh, tomorrow. So I don't think crypto is really all that different. Um, it's just that because people aren't used to it, you don't have relative valuation metrics. You have to just really think about what are the scenarios in which I get paid. Um, crypto is a lot less scary as an investment if you start saying, I'm willing to be paid in what crypto will buy. So, you know, and, uh, I don't know that you'll ever be able to buy a home, you know, a physical piece of real estate uh, with crypto. Um, I'm pretty happy to be able to buy a cup of coffee with it, but but um, um, I'm very confident you'll be able to buy internet services, access to media, um, communication, advertising, or or you'll be able to sell your attention, you'll be able to sell your work product, and things like that. So if those things matter to you. If you know if a good part of your life is on the internet, if you're you know communicating with people by blogs, if you have friends you only know by email and, and Posts and places, things like that. If, if a good part of your income and interest is reading or writing for the internet, then I think crypto is pretty easy to feel what the value is. You know, again, putting a number on it is still difficult. 
if you don't, if you have zero interest in all that, if you only interest in crypto is what will it be sell for in a year, then it's a pretty speculative investment. It's hard to have. There's no real fundamental value. You're just betting on what other people will think in a year. So specifically, what projects and assets are you most excited about in your portfolio? I know you've taken a thesis of kind of having maybe a lot of smaller bets and many different assets, but I'm sure you have some some favorites. <laughs> uh, but let's see. There, it's it, I tend to. I guess I guess having favorites is very uh, upsetting <laughs> because you know these brilliant white papers you know fade away to nothing or these people who see you get this team that seems really smart and then they all kind of you know go off to other things and so on so it's it's not wise to get too attached. Um, I, if I had to pick one that I really have a lot of faith in, hope for it's Tezos. That I was very early in that. I uh, I really like the idea. The general idea of a stable coin that isn't backed by any kind of physical and that doesn't require any connection to anything else. I mean, I think some anchor of value is, is going to be very important. And, and the nice thing I like, I mean, the thing I like about Tezos is it's kind of an all-in-one. It, 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 it is that, it, it's not just a stable coin for a lot of other things to work. It also has built into it a, a, a platform a lot of other functionality. If there is going to be a general purpose, stable value exchange uh, uh, coin, I think Tezos is clearly the leader for that. I mean, Bitcoin is clearly the gold standard, the, the leading candidate as a store of value or as a funding currency or as a currency that's going to be used for translating to fiat currencies or not. Um, Ethereum, for all of its uh, tremendous success is basically proven that it's really good for uh, initial coin offerings. Um, really cool for lots of sandbox kind of projects. I, I'm just not as uh, I don't. I'm not. I, it may just be too big, too advanced, too difficult to maintain because of its size and, and diversity to really take advantage of things that are going on. Um, in terms of transactions, you know, I guess I have no opinion. You know, there's Lightning Network, Litecoin, uh, Monero, you know, is it privacy people want, is it speed, is it, you know, maybe they'll all be successful, maybe, you know, one of them will win out. I do believe there is going to be a zoom. You know, you're going to have, I, I think you probably need a few big, you know, one stable coin, one store of value, one general purpose exchange coin, or maybe two of each of those, because, you know, they get a little competition, but but I think that we're going to see hundreds of thousands of specialized ones as well, uh, many of which haven't been invented yet. And then one last thing. Is there anything, that, any sort of wisdom from the traditional finance world that you would want to bestow upon uh, people who have taken an initial interest in investing on the crypto side? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the same basic rules apply, right? You uh, don't invest what you can't afford to lose. You have a thesis, and you uh, uh, you are consistent with your thesis until it's proven wrong. You know, if you're changing it every month or every year, then you didn't really have a thesis to begin with. But at some point, you do want to admit you're wrong. Um, you know, my thesis of a two percent value. I mean, it would take a lot to make me move it. I haven't moved it since 2013, despite all of the booms and busts. 
uh, in between. But I could see a situation where I said, okay, you know, it's no longer 2% of zero, so I'm not going to keep buying on dips, or, or it's not 2%, it's 10%, so I'm going to start chasing. But it would take an awful uh, uh, lot to move me there. I don't think it makes sense for anybody to bet their entire financial future on crypto. Um, but I also don't think it makes sense for anybody to completely ignore it. I think, you know, again, if you tell me it's 0.1% or 10% of your portfolio, I say, okay, fine, that's a judgment call. But uh, if it's zero or 100, I think it's, uh, it's a mistake going back to my initial comment about some of these crypto companies that basically were 100% invested in, in, in crypto. Which, which just doubles their, they have all their business risk of their particular idea, and on top of that, they now have 100% um, um, crypto risk. 100% crypto risk. That is the title of this episode, I think. Aaron, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'll have a proper introduction at the beginning of this episode with places where you know they can read your writings and the stuff we know about. But is there anything new you're working on? Anything maybe like a Post AQR blog or something that you've got going. I don't have the uh, consistency for a blog, um, um, but uh, uh, I do write columns for Bloomberg. So whenever I get a thought that's blog worthy, I kind of uh, put it out there. Uh, the one thing uh, I do have is I would. Last time we talked, I was working on a book on Fisher Black. I have a contract for it, but I've kind of reached the thought as I've been researching this book that. All of the stuff I'm writing about is really already available um, in either some of Fisher's work or in some of uh, some other places, or I could put it online. And I don't think I'm going to get the uh, attention I want from book. I think the people who would read the book are people who kind of already are interested in this stuff. And I really would like to raise his uh, prominence in, in, among a broader group of people. So I've decided I'm going to try instead to produce a series of short uh, video lectures, you know, 10 minute uh, video casts, basically one for each chapter of the book. And I hope that if I can get wide distribution for those, people will watch those and then go uh, read the stuff and figure it out that way. Uh, Fisher Black is a very original, fascinating thinker. And his ideas are perfectly suited for that 10 minute video. They're not really so well suited for writing because they're so short and they're so dense <laughs> that people kind of read it and they, they you know, uh, they don't know what to make of it. He didn't write, you know, he, he would take a thousand page book that somebody else would have written explaining things in great detail and he makes it into a three page essay and, uh, and, and people have difficulty unpacking it. But you take the same idea and you do it in a video, I think people can say, oh, now I see the idea, and I'll go back and I'll puzzle through and I'll read it you know, five times to really figure out exactly what he meant. Because he really, he tailored every word very carefully. You read it, you got to read it, read it again, think about why did he use that word instead of that word, and that's not an effort people are going to make unless they kind of have already seen the payoff. Mm. Oh, that's exciting. Um, well, as that becomes available, we will... Have it in the show notes, but probably if you guys are listening to this right as it comes out, um, won't be available yet, but yes. Uh, Aaron, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for coming. <laughs>